Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. It is such a pleasure to have Mr Ron Moore on the show with us today. Ron is a leading expert in the fields of operational reliability and performance. He has written the books, What Tool When, a management guide for selecting the right improvement tools, making common sense, common practice and many more. Ron is currently working with global Fortune 500 companies as well as small to medium, helping them create a better future. Let's get into the episode. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here. And yeah, really appreciate hello it. to all, your, all my Aussie mates out there. Yeah. <laughs> Ron, I've been to your training courses and I've been following your work for so long, so it's such a pleasure to have this conversation today. Ron, Ron what is your backstory, bud? Like, what led you into the fields of operational reliability? Uh, chance, I think, would be the, the short answer. Um, the uh, well, when I was when I was president of, of CSI, of course, a lot of people out there would remember them. We made predictive maintenance tools, primarily vibration, and we had some oil, infrared, and so on. But as a part of that, I felt like that that those tools irrespective of whether people bought them from us or from somebody else, but those tools could literally improve world productivity because you'd have a much better understanding of your, um, of your equipment condition. You could optimize and, and streamline your maintenance practices and, and so on. So I was really uh, taken by that. Uh, I also happened to be a Deming acolyte or disciple. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I was keynote at one of our conferences and somebody came up and asked me, are you, are you a Deming disciple? And I said, uh, I, I guess so. I don't know. And he said, Oh, you sound just like him. So I thought, well, maybe I should go read Deming. <laughs> yeah. And I did. And it turns out, uh, Oh, he's just a superb, you know, superb guy. You know, he's, he's long gone now, but he's one of my, uh, my favorite people ever from a management perspective. So anyways, as a part of doing that, I also got involved with folks like DuPont and Eastman Chemicals and, and some other folks. And, you know, as you learn how your tools are used to help improve their productivity, you learn about a whole lot of other things in terms of how they run a manufacturing plant. And so what, what I tried to do is understand how we would use our tools to help them be more successful because it integrated really well into how they were running their business. Of course, when you do that, you have to learn more about their business and how they do it and what works and what doesn't work. So that, over time, that just evolved into, you know, what some of what you see today and what I do. The, the other thing that happened is kind of a war story here. Uh, you know, we were 
we were small and young and enthusiastic and entrepreneurial and sometimes didn't really know what we were doing. Okay. From a business, we just knew if we made it, people would want one, you know, you just have that. You're just in your gut, you know, it's kind of like an iPhone, you know, if you create it, people are going to want one and and you don't do any market analysis. (laughs) You just make it and hope. So I called the marketing manager in my office and I said, how are we going to sell this stuff? He said, well, I'm going to load up all the salesmen with one each and they're going to go around and show it to people and sell it. You know, like you want to buy a watch, <laughs> you know, you got a, you know, a cup full of watches. You want to buy a watch? You want to buy an instrument? We got some here. <laughs> and I said, no, wrong answer. And uh, he and I had a fight actually. I mean, a, a really serious, you know, nose to nose, toe to toe. And at some one point he said, well, you can fire me if you want to. And I said, I understand my prerogatives about your employment. Mm. Now get out of here before I do just that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, long story short, we created this thing called the reliability based maintenance strategy. And there was this combo of prevent, preventive, predictive and proactive practices. And the proactive included design, procurement, operations, and maintenance, of course. And that evolved into, you know, into what I do today. And really, all I was trying to do is create a strategy document that if people bought into, then they had to buy our products. It's and so that's, yeah, it's that's the kind of the backstory on that, you know? Wow. It's a neat story, Ron, because you've you've come from that business commercial world and designing technology for focused on reliability. And then yeah. back back then you had the insight to go, okay, well, let's create a complete value-add approach to this and help change the way that organizations do maintenance and reliability that, yeah. okay, incorporates a bit that we do, but also goes a lot further. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, if you're, if you're talking to a, a technician or a maintenance manager or a maintenance supervisor, they really don't have any authority or, <laughs> or money, you know? So if you want to sell this stuff, you got to convince, you know, the site manager, the VP, you know, you got to convince that level of here's the strategy. And once they buy the strategy, you know, and by the way, here, I can help support that strategy. Wow. So I was, I was thinking, you know, much more broadly than just, you want to buy a watch. <laughs> Ron, you should have, you should have written a, a sales book, Ron. Let me just give a bit of backstory here. <laughs> I, I had a portion of my career that I was leading a business that was sales also. And mm-hmm. I decided that that watch salesman approach or the used car approach is just not good, but it's still predominantly the way that things are sold right now. And yeah. I thought, how do we sell value and actually help the customer? And yeah. I wrote a book, ended up writing a book called agile sales, which is how do you bring continuous, continuous improvement thinking into the way that you actually approach customers and engage them and help them but you were doing that way before I ever got involved in this. Well, I mean, you, you eventually do have to sell them a watch, you know, (laughs) but if they're already convinced they need one, you don't really have to sell them. No, you you just have to present something that meets their needs and you know, less convincing required. And the other thing that that does is it, it expands the market dramatically. 
so you know i just felt like it was the you know it was the right thing to do and you know and i really didn't i wasn't trained in that i just sort of felt like that was the right thing to do just like our instruments i just sort of we felt like those were right instruments for the market so a lot of it was just you know from the gut i you know i agreed with that completely but then you know, once we had the ideas, then we began to actually do some market analysis and do some, you know, some legwork about who was buying and what, you know, we had a, uh, what, target market and profile customer that we used to uh, actually pick certain industries and in, in certain locations and so on. So, but that was after, you know, norm, a marketing book would tell you, you got to do that first. <laughs> but, but it didn't happen that way. But so, I want to, Ron, I think when you were doing this, mate, if, if you'd done that, you mightn't have come up with the innovative idea because potentially the data would have shown you different trends based on the majority of people selling watches and the yeah. way that they're approaching it. You're innovative idea because sometimes, I guess, like you said, you know, there's also the come up with an idea and put it out there and learn from it. You know, that's the yeah. whole foundation of, agile now in relation to some of the improvement they do it's on experimentation which isn't based on necessarily a heap of data it's learning by putting yeah. it out there and seeing what and learning from it rapidly well but it carries certain risk too because you know there are a lot of people who have maybe used a similar approach and failed miserably yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so you know we we lucked out and and we had you really had just had a combination of of folks that gelled at the right time in the right place and, and it just just worked out really wonderfully you know mm. and you know our our fundamental mission in my mind was to help our customers be more successful you know it wasn't yeah. about the watch yeah. or the instrument it was how do we help you get a better night's sleep how do we help you improve your profitability? You know, how do we help you solve your problems so you're more successful? Because I always felt like if, if we made them successful, well, we couldn't help but be successful. Yeah. So it was, it was that kind of thinking that went into just about everything we did. Mm. And, and you're, leading, you, you're leading with purpose. Yeah. And now, Ron, if you look at it, there's about probably a, a, book, a book every three months written about leading with purpose. <laughs> So, <laughs> you, there's you're a billion on the, books out there on leadership you know? yeah i know i know you didn't you've done it. that's impressive but my impressive so ron you know through this journey right you you define this purposeful approach which was i actually want to help my customers improve and have a better night's sleep and become more profitable and achieve and and i guess it was american focused largely to start with uh Initially, the first uh, two or three couple of years, but we, we very rapidly uh, put in place a distribution network worldwide. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, we had we had distributors in well everywhere. All the European countries had a headquarters in in Brussels, uh, uh, well near Brussels in Leuven, mm. and we had uh, distributors in every country in Europe. Wow. Uh, we had distributors in South America. We had distributors in Asia and, and China even, yeah. you know? So, yeah. And, That's neat. and, and these were, 
our sales force was generally uh, reps or distributors. They were not employees because we didn't have any money. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you don't have any money, how do you put in place, you know, a distribution system, a sales system? So we hired distributors who took a commission. Now we had to spend the money to train them and go visit them and so on. Yeah. But we didn't have that huge capital outlay, no. you know, that goes with hiring, you know, 50 or hundred people. <laughs> so, so, and that worked, uh, worked out really well. Yeah, you know, we had the, a really good relationship with those guys because yeah. they knew the locals. Yeah. Right. You got to know the locals. Yeah. And, and their needs and requirements and customs and all that sort of thing. So, so that's the, you know, that's how we did that. Yeah. We, yeah. we were global. Yeah. That's neat. <laughs> and Ron, and Australia. Know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I know had, you've had, you've had such a strong connection with Australia over the years. So it's been oh, yeah. wonderful, really helped our country. Go to the enterprise excellence academy.com backslash downloads to get hold of a time optimization program that will be available for a limited period. This program has been designed to help the individual and leaders save time themselves that they can then put more to an excellence journey. It's connected with the enterprise excellence academy release of agile training and community. To get involved, go to the website enterprise excellence academy.com and connect to learn more or register. Let's get back to the episode. Ron, with um, the journey, okay, so you, you early on set this purposeful path and you started to actually build like a full operational reliability and performance model. But who really helped you evolve it? Like who were some people that inspired you and helped you to basically become the expert you became, you know, where a lot, you know, manufacturers all over the world now look to you with your knowledge that is broader than just the predictive and the technology part of reliability and performance. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I want to go way back, <laughs> way back to my, uh, my early, uh, childhood. I had great teachers, you know, I've in my, my grade school, my high school, and, and even in college, I had just super duper teachers. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful to those folks. And, and I didn't grow up in an area that was known for having great educational systems. You know, I grew up in, in Hillbilly, Eastern Kentucky. You know, we didn't have indoor plumbing. Oh, wow. We didn't have indoor heating. You know, we had a pot-bellied stove and, and so on. So, but the teachers were just superb. You know, we were studying things when I was in seventh, eighth grade that most kids didn't, don't see in high school today. So it was just, a, I suppose, good fortune to have had those, those great teachers. And then over time, I managed to get an appointment to West Point, to the military academy, you know, and that's just a superb leadership institution. Yeah, you get taught military stuff and you get taught you know, the engineering stuff, but you also get taught a lot about leadership and responsibility. So that was quite formative for me, incredibly formative. I mean, life-changing. So, uh, and sort of that just sort of evolved into an engineering career and a management career and so on. But it, it really began, and my parents, of course, they were just superb, 
just wonderful parents. Can't say enough good things about them, you know, rest their soul. So I think when you have those confluence of good teachers, good environment, good parents, and so on, you know, really wonderful things can happen if you challenge yourself. And, and it's, it's probably my nature to challenge myself about doing things well. Part of that comes from my mother and my father. <laughs> you know, they were loving, but they were also, they set high standards. So it's that sort of thing that, uh, well, that creates, you know, this drive. Now, in terms of professionally, oh, gosh, uh, the, the biggest influencers on me have been uh, probably Drucker and Deming. You know, those are the, the two names that come to the forefront. And then, of course, others like uh, Tom Peters, you know, In Search of Excellence, uh, you know, kind of comes to mind, you know, right at this point. There's some good they, names there. They're about the, the best of the best when it comes down to like, yeah. I agree, Drucker and Deming. Wow, their work's amazing. Yeah, Tom I know. Yeah, so professionally, those guys probably influenced me more in terms of, constructing in my own mind the, the you know the approach to management and how you synthesize things and so on and you know to some extent peter singe you know he, he talks about thinking at a systems level which most companies don't do they got all these functional elements and and those elements are representing their own interests without considering the impact they're having on the other functional elements and yet you end up with dysfunction you know, yeah. much like most political systems. <laughs> so, and, you know, rather than thinking about what's the right thing to do for the business or in politics for the country, they're thinking about more about, you know, what can I do for me? But yeah. that's, that's, that results in a fairly dysfunctional system if taken to the extreme. So, you know, those are, I don't know, three or four names that, that come to mind. There are probably others that I just can't think of off the top of my head because I'm old. Yeah. Well, Ron, I really get the the feeling through our conversation. You know, you, you're a constant learner. Like even like you're mentioning, you're hearing about Deming and then heading out and starting to study Deming. It's yeah. That, you've been a constant learner. Ron, with, with operational reliability and performance, what are the, and I guess it's a given that it's so critical to a manufacturer. Okay. But I guess like you, I meet a lot of manufacturing facilities where there's silos, they're not thinking systematically and there's poor reliability. You know, it's very, very common. But what, what are the key elements to moving forward with operational reliability and performance? Well, you know, you could probably sum it up with three things. Leadership, leadership, and leadership. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's a bit like, you know, how do you know, you know, what property to buy it's location, location, location. And, and I don't mean to be, uh, what too uh, what, uh, dismissive or take too, uh, light of an approach to it, but it really is about leadership, but it's, it's, it, I think it goes beyond that. It's, it's leaders understanding what reliability is and aligning the workforce to a, you know, like a global strategy an overall strategy 
and then engaging the folks in fulfilling that strategy with a few simple rules. If you try to be too prescriptive and they feel put upon, if you're not prescriptive enough in terms of what your expectations are, then you'll get a lot of meandering. And so for the leadership to get that balance right, I think, first of all, they have to align the organization from top to bottom to a common strategy, a common set of goals, and have some sort of process that fosters collaboration and shop floor engagement. Now, what I mean by collaboration, in a manufacturing plant, I think it's essential that production and maintenance have a, a, some form of partnership. It might be written literally or it might be understood, but they're working together to a common purpose to eliminate the defects that are causing the problems and to be held accountable to some common measures. Because if, if you have measures that are independent of my measures, right, and we're held accountable to that and we're, we're rewarded for that, if those measures aren't compatico and if they don't work well together, well, we're going to destroy whatever progress we might make in our individual departments because the overall organization doesn't succeed. Mm. So just so for example, common. so common. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. So for example, in a manufacturing organization, I think production should be held accountable for things like you know, production, of course, you know, quality product out the door, but also for things like maintenance and repair costs and unplanned downtime. I think that maintenance should be held accountable for those same things and for production schedule compliance. Yeah. So if you hold both responsible for those, you know, sets of measures, then they're going to have to put their heads together from time to time and strike a balance on what's the right thing to do for the business. Yeah. Okay. And, and likewise, you could go through other examples of other functional elements now, if you just have a couple of what measures that are at times at odds with each other and hold both departments accountable for that, but pick one to take the lead, you're probably going to get a better result. Yeah. Ron, you've touched on something that I've seen so strongly is that measures, the old saying measures drive behavior. Yeah. And I come across a lot of organizations in Australia where, uh, Measures have been in place for 30 years or 20 years or 15 years, and they don't really consider measures and they don't really think about what am I measuring people on and what behaviors is it driving? It's like measures, no, nah, measures don't drive behavior or measures aren't important. We just need them to do that. But it's huge. Just the simple way that you measure people and then recognize them or even reward them in some cases off of that. It yeah. drives, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think it drives huge behavior. Yeah. Well, particularly if you, if you, uh, put some incentives with it, you know, now you can't, uh, just a word of caution, you can't, uh, put so much emphasis on the measure and the incentive that you lose some of that intrinsic incentive that people have in just doing a good job. Yeah. So there has to be enough there to get their attention, but not so much that it drives, you know, everything that they do. And, you know, 
get the right balance. I don't know. It, it just requires a certain amount of, I suppose, judgment, you know, and it may change from time to time, depending on the circumstance. So, uh, yeah, having incentives that they care about, but not so much that they do things that are detrimental to the overall success of the organization, I think is, uh, is really important. Yeah. It's interesting, Ron, like you mentioned these four elements um, for operational performance and reliability, you know, leadership and then leadership understanding reliability. You know, I can see that's massive because how can they lead it without that understanding of reliability? But then I can hear two messages in your alignment bit. I can hear the message of strategically aligning them, you know, right down to the operational level and maintenance level and all those cross-functional teams. But then also aligning them systematically across the system, like you mentioned with Peter Senge, you know, where you're talking about looking at how you measure them. How do you get these cross-functional teams to collaborate to ultimately help the machines run better, to ultimately help get outcomes for customers? Yeah. Well, one of the big misunderstandings, I think, in in the minds of, you know, folks in in leadership positions, executives, CEOs, VPs, and and such, is that, and and we as a society uh, across the world have fostered this, is that they think of reliability as a maintenance thing, primarily driven by maintenance. Yeah. Well, that's a mistake. I think it's an enormous mistake. And the, the, because the problem is maintenance doesn't control 90% of the production losses that occur in a manufacturing plant, typically. You know, it varies somewhat from that 90%, but maintenance, maintenance only controls about 10% of your production losses. And if you go look at root cause, you know, in terms of, is it a bad design? Is it, you know, do we have problems with procurement? Do we look at the operating practices and do we look at maintenance practices? Even if you just boil it down to equipment, what you typically find is that two-thirds of the equipment failures are not controlled by maintenance. Now, they have to, quote, fix it. But they, if you could stop the defect that created the failure, then you'd be far, far better off. Lower cost, less risk of injury. You know, I've got data on that. and and just an overall better performance. So if you, if you look at a typical manufacturing plant, something like two thirds of the production losses have nothing to do with the equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And yet equipment gets all the attention. The downtime gets all the attention. Well, that's just nonsense. You know, because mm-hmm. most of the production losses are in, Things like product changeovers, process changeovers, uh, you know, raw material problems, uh, you know, speed problems, quality problems, you know, maybe blending problems. You know, those operational issues create about two thirds of the losses from ideal in a typical manufacturing plant. And again, of the one third that is equipment related, maintenance only controls about a third of that. So about one third of one third is what they're in control of. And, and too often, most companies think of, of reliability as a maintenance thing. It's an equipment thing. Well, in my mind, at least, reliability is about the ability of a production system to produce as on demand the maximum quality product 
on time, in full, at the lowest sustainable cost. Now, that's a business perspective of reliability. And if you don't have that, you're missing the bet. You're ignoring, uh, you know, at least two-thirds of the opportunity. Mm. And, and that's where the money is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, and, but it doesn't get any attention. You know, mm. the equipment, when it goes down, it gets attention. Yeah. And it's misplaced yeah. in a lot of cases. And I can see what Not you're saying. Not always. Yeah. And I can see what you're saying too, Ron, particularly around that alignment piece, because if you have these different departments working in silos and maintenance is just sweating certain measures, production sweating certain other measures, and they're not collaborating, you're missing out on bringing these different minds with different capabilities together to deal with the biggest challenges of waste or impacts on operating performance, because then often they're not collaborating, aren't they? And that's that alignment bit. If we can get these cross-functionally skilled, different capability people to align and work together, you can get massive outcomes, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, another point here, you know, reliability begins where? It doesn't begin in the maintenance function. (laughs) It's too late. It begins in the design. So having operating and maintenance folks participate in the design to address some of the, the issues, the defects, the problems that they come across every day is really important. You know, it begins in the design and then you got a procurement phase, you know, and too many procurement managers want to buy based on price as opposed to performance or total cost of ownership. Yeah. And if you don't take that into account, you know, then you're, you're ignoring 75% of your life cycle cost or your total cost of ownership. So you've got to, you know, from the get go, you've got to account for those things appropriately and spend the money up front to do that. And if you do that, you're going to be much happier with the long-term prospects of the operation. Mm-hmm. And, and very often, you know, capital budgets are constrained. So the project is constrained on its budget and you you got to demonstrate a certain return on capital, and then you overrun your budget by 50%. But at that point, it's too late, and you can't look back. You got to move forward, and golly, you know, now you're in a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and there are lots of projects out there like that. You know, yeah. at one point in my career, I was vice president of projects, so I know about projects and problems with projects and overruns and all that sort of thing so yeah it seems like we're we're so obsessed with putting everything in its bucket and measuring everything as a simple bucket rather than looking at the complete system it seems like in many organizations we're obsessed with that let's just look let's just simplify it down to the bucket you just focus on your bucket and we'll measure you based on your world of that bucket yeah well, look at the whole some system. of that's okay. You know, some of that's okay because people do need things that they can give, give attention to and focus on. But somebody in the organization at a fairly high level needs to make it clear to folks that the overall objective is to make the business successful, not just your department. And if that requires collaboration, then that's what I expect you to do. Yeah. So yeah. that's, but that goes back to the issue of leadership. 
And, you know, I, a lot of organizations don't have particularly good leadership. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I heard you mention before, Ron, then, you know, it's about having that clear vision and that clear purpose and the element of goals that do align us, goals and other measures that do align us and bring us into play. Yeah. Well, that's the end of the episode with Ron. What a humble, amazing person he is. He's achieved so much himself and helped so many others. Emily and I are looking to do the same with the Enterprise Excellence Academy and community. You know, the academy provides training on agile and amazing techniques that you can use to truly create a culture of continuous improvement and innovation. And the community is designed to help sustain the journey, support each other, connect you with our world's experts, and truly help to transform and achieve great things. To find out more, go to enterpriseexcellenceacademy.com. Bye for now.